Dear little sisters, thank you for tuning into this episode. We're really excited to share the stories of our guests with you. We hope that after each episode, you come out a little bit more inspired and can dream just a little bit bigger. So listen, reflect, and refocus. We truly hope you enjoy this insightful conversation. Thanks for listening. Dear little sisters, we are honored to introduce you to our guest, the esteemed Dr. Swati Mohan, who currently works at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in the Guidance, Navigation, and Control section. She has worked on a number of missions, including Cassini, Grail, OCO3, Mars 2020, Perseverance, and Psyche. Thank you so much for coming onto our podcast today. We are absolutely thrilled to have you. Yeah, I'm honored that you guys asked me to come. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So can you please first tell us a bit about your journey to get to where you are today? Absolutely. So I actually spent my entire childhood uh, with no idea that this was going to be the career that I ended up picking. Um, I told everyone that I wanted to be a pediatrician. I was well on that path until uh, the middle of high school. Like I was candy striper at the hospital and was taking biology and anatomy um but all through it uh the thing that i used to do for fun was read about space and space travel when i was a child about eight or nine um i saw my first star trek episode and it was very pivotal because up until then i hadn't really considered any world beyond our own and i saw these images in that star trek episode of blues and pinks and purples up against the backdrop of space and I can remember thinking that's beautiful where is that because nothing I see here looks anything remotely like that I remember my dad saying oh that's that's space I'm like wow that's that's some place like it's a real place like you can actually go there uh so I got hooked on science fiction and Star Trek and just started uh really being curious about space I would go to the library and just check out books upon books uh, just trying to learn about space everything from like planets to the big bang theory to like how stars were formed and that was my fun reading along with science fiction uh science fiction books that was what I did for fun it didn't register as a career though because it was like oh it's just science fiction you know that's that's not real that's not actually a career it wasn't until I got to high school and I took my first physics class that I understood what engineering was and what it meant to actually build things for a particular purpose. It was also kind of eye-opening because uh, up until now I had been going down this field of biology. Uh, like biology requires a lot of memorization. Um, and it was something that I was pushing myself to do because I said it. So I'd said it as like a child of five and like, oh, that's, it's set now, it's set in stone. That's obviously what I have to be. Um, but like I hated dissections, this, the smell of the formaldehyde and like the process of dissection just like grossed me out. I wasn't good at memorizing. It took a long time for me to actually uh, register anything from memorizing. And then here comes physics where the entire year, all you learn is one equation, it's F equals MA. And that's it. That's all you, that's all you have to know. But it, it's all about uh, understanding that. And I was really blessed to have a great teacher who, focused on the why of like, why do we learn physics? What does it mean um, to the world around us? Everything from like 
building a pulley to designing roller coasters, you know? Um, and that's when I really started to shift from biology to, uh, to engineering. I was like, okay, this, this makes more sense to me. It comes way more naturally. And then I was like, oh, if I'm going to do this anyway, I might as well go full steam ahead and do like space. Just like, like do what you love to do. Um, and for me, space at that age, you know, at junior and senior year of high school, uh, space, real space meant NASA. That was like the, the major thing that I connected. Uh, I grew up in Northern Virginia. So we lived close to um, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. Um, and once I made this pivot of like, no, don't, you don't have to be a physician. Why don't you try to be uh, an engineer? Like I went full steam, like get me into NASA, like anything having to do with NASA must be, must mean space. So that's the direction I, I need to go. So I got an internship at NASA Goddard when I was still in high school. Um, I loved it. Like the, the support I got from the people, the hands-on nature of building things. At, we built like model rockets and we actually like launched them. So that process was super fun and kind of cemented that um, feeling of excitement and curiosity and kind of cemented me in that direction. I went to Cornell for undergraduate. Um, I specifically picked Cornell out of the options because um, Cornell had a really good uh, astronomy department. You know, that's where Carl Sagan came out of. Um, and they had a, that Cornell was co, uh, was one of the universities that like co-ran the Arecibo Observatory, uh, which is the massive telescope, uh, actually non-functional right now, but it used to be the massive telescope down in Chile. Um, they also had a really good engineering program um, that actually like built satellites. Um, at the time that I went, uh, the Mars rovers were a big deal. Steve Squires, who was a professor at Cornell, was a PI for the Mars Exploration Rovers, uh, uh, which launched in, in 2003, 2004. That's like right around the time I was uh, going to undergraduate. So it was a big thing of like exploring Mars. And there was this uh, astronomy plus engineering combination in Cornell that uh, really appealed to me. So I went to Cornell. I did a bunch of different internships, kind of like trying out different areas of aerospace engineering. Everything from growing plants in space and like space botany to uh, fluid dynamics was one of the undergraduate research things that I did to uh, like planetary geology where I spent a summer counting uh, rocks and pixels on Martian images to, um, to like satellite build and design um, and interplanetary exploration with one of my JPL internships. So in, letting myself explore all of those different areas to kind of find my niche. Um, I was able to say like, oh, out of all the things that I've sampled, uh, I really like the planetary exploration portion of it um, and the controls, the guidance navigation controls. Guidance navigation controls is like the eyes and ears of a spacecraft. It tells you where you are, where you're going, how you're oriented and it figures out how to get to where you want to go based on like where you are. And that seems such a core part of exploration to me that I loved how like I could help build this thing and I see the connections all the way from like the little box and the wires that we're putting on the spacecraft and those lines of code all the way to the science that it's doing and where it's going and the mission that it's doing. Um, so I uh, I did a brief stint in, in JPL um, after I graduated from undergrad, but then I went to MIT uh, to get my graduate degree um, in guidance, navigation and control. Um, 
I worked on a project called Spheres, which was on the International Space Station, uh, which was an incredible experience because um, I got to work with hardware, design software. Um, I got to test things at like Marshall Space Flight Center. I got to go to Houston to train the astronauts. Um, my research flew in space. So as part of my thesis, I had downlink sessions with the astronauts while they were in space to see them run my uh, run my experience. And it kind of gave the lifespan of a mission in a very short turnaround. So when NASA does missions, they send one, you get the data back, you think about it, and they're like, okay, these are the you know things we need to fix, or these are the questions, and then you wait till the next mission. But the time scale is like decades, right? Bef between those things, like Curiosity discovered something, so they decided to send another rover, but by the time Perseverance got there, Curiosity had already been on Mars for 12 years, right? Uh, but my graduate work, this turnaround was really quick. It was like on the order of months. So it was really cool to get that. Okay, I, I designed, I coded something, I flew it in space, it did this, here's the data. Oh, here's what I need to change, fix it and send it back and then iterate. Um, and the whole operations, like seeing it work in space, not just as a theory, not just as an ex, you know, experiment on the ground, but actually seeing it work in space was really inspirational. Um, I came to JPL straight out of graduate school. Uh, the first mission that I worked on was GRAIL, which was a set of formation flying um, spacecraft around the moon designed to understand uh, lunar gravity, which has uh, ties to the questions about how did the moon form from the earth. Um, after that, I worked on a couple missions that uh, eventually were canceled. Uh, and then I worked on OCO3, which is um, all about climate change. It's called the Orbital Orbiting Carbon Observatory. Uh, it's on the International Space Station and it looks down. Uh, so it's, as opposed to looking you know, out into the outer planets and interplanetary, um, this is one about preserving earth and um, helping to get more data to understand how we're changing our climate, which was kind of cool. Um, and then uh, just a few years after I joined JPL for my graduate degree, I was um, asked if I wanted to join the, the Mars 2020 project. Um, and that was probably the biggest chunk of my career so far. I was on Mars 2020 from 2013 to 2021 after landing. So eight years, longer than it took me to do my PhD, longer than my undergraduate, you know, longer than high school, or at that point it was longer than my younger daughter had been alive. So uh, it was a very huge portion of my career, being able to see it from just an idea, you know, on a piece of paper to, uh, to fleshing it out, thinking of how it should be building it, you know, testing it and getting it to work uh, and do what it needed to do in space. That was a uh, probably my biggest accomplishment to date, just seeing it through that process and watching it come alive and do what it uh, needed to do. Um, and then, uh, so after 2020, I became a, a manager. So I was briefly a manager for my discipline. Uh, and then I got put on the Psyche mission, which um, is slated to launch this October, hopefully, and it goes to uh, an asteroid in the um, asteroid belt called Psyche, which is a interesting target because it's a metal asteroid. We usually think of asteroids as rocky, like rock-based, uh, but this one's metal. They think it uh, might have been the core of the planet that maybe should have formed between Mars and Jupiter, but didn't because the the gravitational energy from Jupiter was so high that like 
you get like a rocky asteroid belt instead of an actual planet. So by learning about Psyche, um, it's an exposed, you know, planetary core that we can't really see elsewhere. So we might learn about how our own Earth core is by studying Psyche. Um, my role on Psyche is very different. I'm the I'm the guidance navigation control lead. So uh, as opposed to like in 2020, where I did a bulk of the technical work myself, like I was the one uh, in the chair for ops. I was the one uh, in the test bed running the long shifts. Uh, I am a manager on Psyche. So um, I uh, I coordinate and, and lead the team as opposed to doing the work myself, which is, has been a, a different sort of challenge for me. You know, it's kind of how I got to where I am today. First, I just have to say, wow, that is absolutely <laughs> amazing. Like Bernice and I were talking before the interview and we are just so happy to have you today and so inspired by you and the work that you've done, not only to well, inspire young girls, but just our whole planet, our whole world. It, it's absolutely amazing. So thank you. Um, thank you. So how did it feel to land the rover on Mars? I have, I want to know. I'm curious. Uh, the the actual day was very surreal for me. Um, we do practice runs of it, and and it's, most of them uh, are to train the team, like to make sure that like if something goes wrong, we're calm, we're collected, like we know how to fix things and in times of crisis we know who to talk to uh, so we had actually run through what the day of landing would look like uh, at least three times before before that day with you know with everybody there and and you know we all knew like what we were going to say we had put you know mock simulations of like what the data would look like so that we could pretend that we were there um so for me there was one part that was like okay maybe this is just another practice run. It seems very much like that. The actual day of landing, like things checked off pretty pretty smoothly. I mean, we had our, our hiccups, but uh, it clocked out pretty nicely. So there was one part of like, okay, is this really real? Like, is this another simulation? Um, that part was kind of rest when uh, we got our first image back. And this was like a couple of minutes after landing. Because uh, most of our, our practice runs, right? They're with our mock-up that's, you know, in a building at JPL. So the first image that comes back is not a real Mars. Like it's usually of like test bed engineers who have like their two thumbs sticking up, you know, as they smile in front of the camera for us in mission control. But this this was an image of Mars, like something no one had picked. It actually had come from Mars itself. So that was the first instance of like, oh, oh, th this is real. This, this actually happened. Um, and that kind of started the, it, it was an immense relief. Like the week leading up to it, uh, it was almost waiting for another shoe to drop. Like there's so many things that can go wrong and we plan for them, which means like we spend a lot of time actually thinking about what can go wrong in order to plan for them. So we have all of this information in our head, not just of what can go wrong and what we've planned for, but the, the things that can go wrong that we've decided not to fix or like that we won't tolerate. So then you have all these doomsday scenarios where, like it comes with have, knowing your system to like, oh, if this happens and this happens, like that's game over. And we're, we're not gonna survive that. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be done. And the closer to EDL, closer to landing day 
um, you get, the more of those things that you can't fix goes up, right? So the whole week leading up to it, it was waiting for the next shoe to drop. Oh, is there something gonna happen today? If it happens today, I might have just enough time to fix it. And as it got closer, the blood pressure was kind of inching its way up and up. So when we finally got that picture down, it was a huge relief uh, for, the amount, for the entire team because eight years we've worked on this project eight years for just to get to the ground safely. There's no redos, there's no double try, you know, there's nothing you can do if it doesn't happen successfully. It means the last eight years of your life that you had worked for this moment is done, right? And it's it's a very clear either it worked or it, it didn't. Um, so the relief comes from both that it worked, you know, and then the last eight years of your life was validated that it was, it was for something it, you know, it meant something that it was going to go down as a success. Um, but then it was also sad, right? We had been together as a team for a long time. I mean, I had been on it for eight years, but I think that some people joined later, but by the last like three, four years, there was a core team that had been together for a long time through the, the hardships of like testing and through things not working through the pandemic and having to like change how we talked. Uh, and then to get to this big moment, being being in the middle of a pandemic, not uh, having been able to be in person to share a lot of the the, the joy and the triumphs that come in that last year, uh, it was bittersweet because that was our last chance. And most of us working through Cruise and EDL, like it was a very, you're done and everybody dispersed and goes to different projects and you're not that cohesive team anymore. So it was kind of, it was fabulous and a big relief. And it was also bittersweet, sort of like the uh, the series finale of a very long beloved show where you're honored to have worked on it. You're really proud of it, but you're kind of sad that it's done and you won't, it won't be the same after that. That's so beautiful. I think what you said so perfectly encompasses the feeling like it was bittersweet because you worked so hard to land the rover and you saw it all come together but I think from what you said like the people really shaped your experience working on the project and working on the mission yeah absolutely and I think that was it that part of it saved us a little bit during the pandemic like uh, when we couldn't be in person there's so much that you lose in terms of communication when you're not there but for this team specifically, it came so late. Um, like it, for us, it came like two, two or three months before launch, right? So we've been together for as a team, as a very tight knit team in person for many, many years. And at this point, even on a you know on a voice call without any videos or whatever, we could tell just by how someone said something or the pause before they responded of like what what was going on what whether it was a big deal or like how much to be worried or you know who to talk to or th there was very little um worry about like cold texting or cold calling the communication was so strong in this team that it really helped us uh fly the ship you know even when we couldn't be there together in person because we had built the the relationship so strong that um, 
not being together, we could still understand each other through the limitations in technology. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Like, I can't imagine how incredible and rewarding it is to like finally see a project being successful after eight consecutive years of working on it. Um, I also study um, like subjects in STEM. I go to like a STEM high school and I've worked on like engineering projects for like a year or like half a year. And even those small research projects, seeing them go from an idea to like a mock-up to test, it's such a long process and it's so rewarding when it comes together. And I can't imagine what it feels like to work on something on such a large scale. And I just think it's so cool and so impressive. It's very cool. I had never worked on a mission this intensely for this long. So even this was a very uh, novel experience for me. Um, yeah, I highly recommend it. I don't know that I have it in me to do many more of these, <laughs> but going through one landing was stressful enough. I I really admire the people at JPL who've been able to go through five, you know, consecutive landings. That's uh, insane pressure <laughs> to, to be able to survive that. I was going to say, talk about no pressure when you something you worked for for eight years and you all see it come together on that day. That must have been so much excitement and stress. I, like Bree said, I can't even imagine. That's amazing. Yeah. It took me six months before I could actually watch the footage from landing day. Like it was too traumatic for me to actually go back and watch the recording until at least six months uh, after landing day before I could get back into that uh, into that headspace. It was just um, on a different level as, as most things are. Launch was even, um, it, it was not as stressful. There was a little worrisome. The launch was funny because the stress came from other things. Like uh, 15 minutes before launch, we had an earthquake in mission control at JPL. And it's one of those things we already had to deal with a pandemic. We're already separated from these like double masks and face masks. And then 15 minutes before the rocket is gonna take off at Kennedy, like there's a little earth, little, not little, literal earthquake in uh, at JPL where we feel the entire ground shake. And I remember thinking, really? Really? Like did you, fate just had to do, not a pandemic wasn't enough. Like you had to throw an earthquake in just for for sauce and then after we launched which thankfully went well uh there was another issue on the vehicle and we couldn't talk to it like we could see it but something had gone wrong and we couldn't talk to it so it was hours spent of not being able to communicate with the spacecraft and trying to figure out what was wrong uh, it was like it was own as if you would imagine a science fiction movie the kind of thing that went wrong between the pandemic and the earthquake and then not being able to talk to it uh, definitely felt at times of I had suddenly gone into the the science fiction shows that I loved so much and was a was a participant <laughs> instead of being in my life yeah that's crazy and it definitely does sound like one of those like sci-fi shows that you would watch and it actually yeah. aligns with our next question which is what are some challenges that you face throughout your career in any of the experiences that you've had yeah so there's kind of two aspects to that um Technical challenges are, uh, they're one category, right? Like everything we do at JPL has 
almost never been done before, right? That's part of our core identity at JPL that we dare mighty things. Um, and, and we're doing the hard thing because uh, we're seeking to find knowledge and usually that's uh, in a way that hasn't been looked after before. So from a technical challenge, like one of the things that we added to Perseverance in order to enable its mission was uh, the ability to figure out where to land safely on Mars. Before we, most of the missions before had kind of used radar and um, inertial measurements, which is akin to like making sure you're up straight and then you hold out your hands uh, and when you touch the wall, you stop. Like you can't see where you are, but you know you're you're stopped, you know that you're standing up straight and you know that um, you're on the ground. Uh, that wasn't good enough for Perseverance. So we actually had to develop new technology to put a camera so that uh, it could see where it was going, figure out where it was and figure out what was, was one of the main things that I was working on. Uh, and we had to integrate it into the existing system. So my job was to test it. So the the people who had like built the algorithms, like they turned it over to me. They're like, okay, we think it works. And then I had to put it into the larger system. Months of of testing, like they tested it. It's not they they think it's working. It's not working. When they gave it to me, I don't understand what's wrong. Tried like fifteen different ways. It's still not working. Like I can't tell uh, what's wrong in this testing. So one day I was really frustrated, and it's not a trivial thing to test, even though landing on Mars takes like just seven minutes, you know, from the top to the ground to test it to get the setup here on the ground, it takes hours, right? Like one seven minute landing takes like eight hours to set up and do right in the in the test bed. So it's not a trivial amount of time. We've exhausted all options. It's like the week before Christmas break when like everybody is going uh, on a holiday. We're supposed to be testing it on the first time in the flight vehicle at the end of January. It's not working, it's not working. So finally I'm like, I don't know what else to test. Maybe we just, run the whole thing and like i i don't think it'll work but at least it may maybe it'll tell us why it's not working so i got my friends who are like okay we're gonna set it up and then we have it all set up so it gets to the part of landing where it usually like craps out and when it craps out it like does uh it just kind of stops and like shows a blinking light that it it doesn't work right so i'm waiting for it get for it to get to that spot and it it's just like still scrolling and i was like wait wait and then it's still scrolling. Like that, that means it it worked. We we looked at each other like it worked. It worked. And we were just like jumping up and down. It was so exciting because that was uh, the first moment where at least I felt we we had a mission. Like we could tell our bosses <laughs> that we had figured it out. It all worked. Uh, and from that point on, it was kind of like like crossing the T's and dotting the I's uh, and just getting to that point had been so onerous. So many technical challenges of like, you know, not figuring out how to connect things right to get it to work. In the end, it was one of the ways that we had configured the system, like the switch was backwards and it, it wasn't getting the right input data. After we ran it in this other configuration, like we were able to go back and find it and then, you know, get to where we're going. But that amount of, uh, testing or endurance of like not working over so many different attempts with this deadline looming ahead of us the week before Christmas break and where everyone was going to disappear and finally having it 
work was just an in incredible uh, feeling. Like overcoming that challenge was probably one of the best feelings that I've, I've had to date in my uh, career. Um, there have also been challenges on more of like a personal professional side that are very different than um, challenges of a technical nature. Technical nature, you you know, at some level they follow logic. There is an answer in some sense, like it may not be the, the one you want, like maybe it costs more than you have or takes more time or, or something like that, but there's usually an, an answer. The professional ones or the personal ones, they're harder because they're like circumstantial or they relate to how you view yourself in the context of others or how you present yourself. These are all soft things. So um, controls engineering in specific is still a pretty male dominated field, uh, even though EDL as a whole and systems engineering at JPL is, has gotten a lot better in terms of um, diversity, uh, controls is still pretty male dominated. Um, from high school to undergrad um, in at JPL, I think my section has hovered around ten percent of um, females in uh, in this subdiscipline specifically. So I was often the only female in the room, um, mostly the only woman of color in the room, uh, which was particularly challenging. Right when I was pregnant or nursing, and it was very clear that I needed other uh, accommodations and making sure that I felt like it didn't, I, I was worried about how others would feel about it detracting from my technical capabilities. Um, in trying to overcome those, I've had to, it has changed some of my personality. So um, I've become um, louder in some sense or more vocal. Uh, in other senses in order to um, make sure my voice at the table is heard um, and had to learn how to self-advocate um, to be able to effectively communicate what I wanted for myself because um, others would have gone with their ideas of what they thought I should do or be good at versus what I wanted to do. And that's that's continued to be a challenge, right? Because it's not a, it's not something that has an answer. It's a continual process to to work on. Um, and as I get um, more confident in my skills, it's become easier um, to do that self advocating. That must be really difficult, especially in the field that you're working in, because it is one of the most male dominated fields in um, STEM. And I think that a lot of us as women really need to learn to self-advocate and be assertive. And it can be really frustrating at times because why why do we have to be the ones that are louder? Like, why do we ha have to speak up more than the other people in the room? And I think that that's really a journey that we all have to go through to some extent. Have you had any mentors in the past who have been women that have inspired you to continue throughout your career? I have. Um, most, I would say, once I got to JPL, um, I was actually hired in by, uh, after my PhD, I was hired in by a woman. So she was my first um, supervisor at JPL. Um, and it was 
it was really pivotal because um, she was my supervisor when I got pregnant with my first child. And I was really nervous about um, telling anybody at work or what it would mean or if I was going to get uh, taken off my project, you know, because I had to go on maternity leave. Um, and her reaction, rather than to, to assume anything, was... Uh, you know, she kind of sympathized. She's like, oh, I remember when I was pregnant with my first kid and we were working ops and I had to do this and this and oh, that sucks. But those are the days. And just having someone to validate, you know, what I was going through. Uh, and she didn't paint a rosy picture, but she did. Um, she did provide an example that it was possible, right? I mean, that had been easy. Uh, and there were definitely challenges of having, you know, how to balance like being on, being in the seat at Mission Control and then having to nurse or stuff like that. But just being able to talk to her gave me that, that little motivation that it was possible to do both, that I didn't have to step back in my career just because I wanted a family too, that even though it was going to be hard, it was possible. And that kept me going, right? It kept me uh, leaning in to into that role and saying, I, I still do want the role that I'm in. I don't want to lean back just because I'm having a kid and I'll I'll figure out what I need to do um, to make it work, but I, I want it. And just having that motivation to say it allowed her to like put it in place so that I could have um, that experience, you know? Um, I've had other uh, women leaders at JPL who've really inspired me. Um, uh, Two of the ones that I've worked closest with are Mimi Ong and Jennifer Prosper. Uh, Mimi was the project manager for the Ingenuity helicopter, which was the first to ever fly, the you know first aerial vehicle on another planet. Awesome first. Uh, she was my boss's boss when I was a young, and and she actually was the one who um, saw the potential in me and and came up with the idea of, oh, maybe we should put her on Mars 2020, knowing that I hadn't had a lot of experience before. It was like two years after I'd um, gotten out of my PhD, but having her in that place, uh, she's like, oh, something she saw in me of potential and knowing how long that project was gonna be. Like, oh, let's let's put her on now. She'll learn what she needs to, really helped, um, helped me in being able to talk that through with her of like, she definitely gave me advice, she's like, you need to like put your head down and learn everything from this position. Like, don't try to, you know, jump ship and go to something else two years later. No, no, you put your head down, learn everything you can. And I promise you that the next thing after that, you know, you'll, you'll speed your way through it. So that helped a lot also to have that guidance of like what to focus on and when was the right time or when to learn. Um, and then another role model than Jennifer Trosper, uh, she, <laughs> She's just an amazing engineer, has worked on all of the Mars rovers, has sat in the landing room, uh, I think for pretty much every single one, which I, like, I barely survived one. I can't imagine how she does, uh, does it, has done it for five, um, and has just, just incredible, like, technical acumen and ability to hold her own, um, like, at the upper echelons of JPL, and it's been really uh, inspiring to watch her work and and see how she can um, you know influence these huge organizations but yet stand uh, stand her ground and own who she is uh, throughout all of it and own her ideas like 
no, I think this is the right thing to do. And I stand by what I think, you know, uh, that's been really inspiring to watch um, and have a, as a role model to emulate. That's amazing. And it seems like the mentors you've had have really shaped your career. And going back to what you were saying at first, I think sometimes as women, we sometimes feel like we can have either or, like a career or a family. And you've showed us that it doesn't have to be this way. You can have both a career and a family and pursue everything you're interested in, everything you want, if you're focused and determined to pursue the journey that's right for you. I think that's really important for girls to remember as they go throughout their career and maybe think about having a family or I guess shape what they want their personal life to look like because I think really everybody has a different journey and everybody has a different story but I feel like everybody's journey and story should be what they want and unique to their interests and passions. Absolutely and a lot of it starts with knowing who you are and what you really want like what is going to make you happy and what uh, drives your passion and then creating that support system for yourself of the people who are going to help you with that who are going to encourage you who are going to support you through that and that includes you know your family especially who you pick as a spouse uh, it also includes your friends it includes your you know work colleagues or your mentors it's this huge network of of people who are um, who are going to support you because that's where you turn to when things get hard right that's that's your support system of of people who are going to um, be there for you because it while it's possible it is hard and you need a network to to help you through that but if you know what you want and you have a good support system and you try right you actively try to do it then you make progress and maybe it takes a different path than you envision or it takes longer, but at least you're making progress and you're doing it for yourself. So you get um, satisfaction out of it. I think that's so perfectly said. And I love what you said, you're doing it for yourself. I think that's really important for everybody to remember because we often think about, we have to help others and please others, which is really important in some aspects. But at the end of the day, everybody, is their own person and you have to take care of yourself first to be able to help anybody else or support anybody else but really having that network and supportive um and the supportive people in your life can really help you in a myriad of ways absolutely and this kind of ties into our last question what is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self So I think the piece of advice I would give to my younger self is a little bit different than the advice I would give uh, to the younger generation as a whole right now. Um, I think the piece of advice that I would give my younger self is uh, to not be afraid of failure, that... Um, trying things in and of itself, even if you know you don't think you're going to make it, if it's something that you want, um, you shouldn't be afraid to try. You shouldn't be afraid of what others are going to think if you try or if you put your foot forward that. Because um, at the end of the day, no failure is ever worse than regret, right? So if 
at least if you tried and you didn't make it, you have the satisfaction of knowing that you tried, right? And that you you did all that you could. And if it wasn't meant to be, it wasn't meant to be. But if you never tried, then it hangs over your head forever of like, what if? Maybe I could have. Um, and that's harder to swallow or come to peace with than, than the failure itself. Um, advice that I would give to younger generations, you know, not me specifically, but um, as a whole, I, I think it goes back to what I said. The, the first step of success is to know who you are and what you want. And I think this is the hardest part, actually, um, because it starts with looking in, right? And it starts with being very honest with yourself um, about what you want and what you're good at and what you're not good at. Um, not what other people say that you're good at or what you like, but what you feel inside. Um, so it requires a level of uh, self-understanding that is hard to get to. Um, but I think so worthwhile if you can do that, because then, you know, whatever you, it just builds this base foundation base that really know yourself, then you can pick a career that's founded in a passion that you have. And then it's not um, a job, it's a calling or it's a, you know, uh, it's an avocation that you can actually build towards. It doesn't seem like it's, you know, something you just do on the side. Um, and when you pair it with something you're intrinsically good at, you set yourself up for success. Right, because you you're picking something uh, and you're picking it in a way that you have the skills uh, that are necessary to succeed, and then you can hone them. So it gives you a, a leg up in that field. Um, the second is to uh, is to build your support structure. Uh, in in any field, there are going to be successes and failures. In any path, there are going to be successes and failures. Um, the important thing is to keep trying, right? But that is made so much easier when you have a support system to lean on, right? When you have people around you telling you, you can do it, you're good at it. Yes, you should do it. Oh, why don't you try again? You know, oh, shouldn't you, you know, look at this because you're really good at doing that. They build you up, right? And they, they give you the motivation when you lack the motivation, they give you the um, strength or the resources to go try like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll watch the kids or I'll drive you to this thing, you know, if you can't make it to yourself. And those little things add up over the course of a lifetime, just like having one negative person, right, is enough to put doubts in your head that would stop you from doing a single, you know, thing, like a, a single thing that a college that you didn't apply to, a single, you know, application that you didn't fill out, a single question that you didn't ask. You never know what these can branch out into it over the course of a, of a career. So really, um, being deliberate in that social structure, the social network that you're building, a support network to build it with people who will who will support what you want to do and will help you along that way makes uh, a huge step into into actually being able to achieve what you want to achieve. And the third thing is probably um, one that people don't realize as much, uh, and it's actively to do your best. You know. Every path is different. And there are doors that open and close that give us these opportunities. But um, most of the doors you will have in life are not ones that are clearly marked. They're not the standard ones that you know of that you say, okay, I'm gonna 
walk up to that door and it'll be based on whether I'm good or not that it'll open or close. A lot of these opportunities come from, you know, following your curiosity of asking these questions, of trying a little, of thinking outside the box to create those opportunities for yourself that you'll learn the most in. So really being active about what you want to do is, uh, is a large portion of it. So pulling on that thread of, of curiosity that if you're interested in something, you know, go try to do it or, or go read about it in the library, go ask a question to, to someone. Um, you never know where that will take you or who you will meet or, you know, what that will, will lead to. Um, and again, it goes back to no failure is ever worse than regret. And if you never ask the question, the answer is always no. But if you ask the question, however slight, there's an option for the answer to be yes. And who knows, the, you know, the bigger question, the bigger that opportunity can be. So knowing yourself, figuring out what path you want to take, surrounding yourself by a good support system, and then being active about your career journey, making the decisions for yourself and asking the questions to, to follow your curiosity and to create your own opportunity. I think that's amazing advice for all young girls to listen to and consider. So thank you so much for coming on to our podcast and for chatting with us. You have really, really inspired the both of us. I'm so glad. I hope you guys will uh, keep in touch and I'm curious to see where you guys, uh, where your paths will take you. Thank you so much.